Amen. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for leading us in worship. Pretty exciting weather out there, is it not? You know, believe it or not, I, I guest preached at a friend's church this morning, and it was even hotter there than it is now. Life's pretty good here at Sedaris. And they did not have root beer floats. That was not a myth. There is root beer float. If you need to get up right now and get one, if like it's been years since you've had one, feel free. I'm, I, hold on, I want to say this very clearly because it's, it's going to lead me into something. I'm Dave, and I am one of the pastors here at Sedaris. Been saying that now for over two years. And it's always been true because, in a sense, we are all pastors and priests. But, in a very real sense, it's going to be truer than ever starting in July. We have help on the way in the name of Ryan and Christy Farrell. That's right, who are coming out to join our team here in Seattle. Ryan and I went to seminary together. Uh, Ryan has been on staff at our sending church in Denver, Colorado, a church called Fellowship Denver, which 10 years ago was a church plant. Now they're around 1,000 people moving into their first building, and we're stealing their director of operations to join our pastoral team. Praise be to God. <laughs> okay. Thievery is okay when it's something like this. But... I wanted to bring that up because I want us to be praying for Ryan and Christy who will hit the road with their two little girls, Lucy and Penny, uh, next week. And they'll road trip out here. They've sold most of their stuff. I just said most like a Canadian. That was amazing. Um, and they've got a nice little U-Haul trailer hitched to the back of their Subaru. And they're coming on out. So in a very real sense... I will just be one of the pastors here at Sedaris, and I cannot be more excited about that. And I think, uh, I just wanted to encourage you guys uh, with a little bit of Ryan and Christy's story, because I'm sure they'll be embarrassed if I do this when they're actually here, so we'll just do it now. Um, Ryan and Christy are leaving comfort, safety, financial security, friends, family, basically every relationship that they've had as a married couple. And they are coming out here to Seattle where they know a couple people, but not many. And they're doing that because they believe deep down in their core that the mission that we are on to start a gospel-centered, Bible-preaching church in the heart of one of the most secular cities in the country is worth it, in and of itself. It's worth all that they're giving up. And they wouldn't even tell you they're giving up anything. They'd just tell you they're excited to get to be a part of the thing we're doing here. Above and beyond that, Ryan believes so much in the mission that he was willing not only to take a pay cut, but to go out and ask all of his friends and family if they would give money 
towards his salary, and he's been able to raise over 50% of his own salary. And I say that not for any other reason but just to know how deeply connected they are to the mission of this church, and they're not even here yet. I'm so excited that they're coming out. I hope it's encouraging to all of you who have been long-suffering in this mission, who have gone through the ups and downs of this mission, that God has not forgotten about us, that he is sending us reinforcements to continue what is one of, I think, the most challenging things that we could be a part of. I also just want to mention this. It's been a great reminder to me, because the road is long, the road is hard to start a new church, no matter where you do it. And for me, it has reminded me that what I need to be rooted in is the mission of this church, not just the relationships. The relationships are important, but they're actually a byproduct, a benefit of being rooted in the mission. And it's reminded me of that because I've been praying for a co-pastor for over four years. And it's also reminded me that God does not have the same calendar that I do, that his timing is not my timing, and that if I patiently wait upon the Lord, he will give good gifts. And so maybe some of you, maybe some of you are waiting for an answer to prayer. Maybe you've been waiting four years or more. I just want to encourage you, don't give up. Don't take a shortcut. Don't take the next best thing. If what you're hoping for and praying for is a good thing, I believe that the Lord will be good. And he has been to me. And I was ready to give up. I was ready to take the next breathing person that was walking on the street. But in December... God surprised me, and out of the blue, Ryan texted me and said, just so you know, God's put Sedaris and Seattle on our heart, and we're praying about it. Out of the blue. And Ryan was somebody that I always dreamed about doing church planting with, back when we lived in Denver. Just never thought it would actually happen. So hang in there, don't give up. I think God is for this mission. He's, he's for this city. And I think what you're going to find when Ryan and Christy get here is that they bring so much to what we're trying to do. I think you're going to love them. I think that, that because they are rooted in the mission and if you're rooted in the mission, I think you will experience the kind of relationship that is far beyond what most people get to encounter in this life and in this city. And Ryan and Christy are great people to do relationship with. So I'm super excited. Please be praying for their uh, arrival. They found a place to live, so thank you for those of you who have been praying for that. They, they found a place um, actually just only like five-minute walk from here on the other side of I-5 in the U District. Um, it's going to be awesome. So praise be to God. Praise be to God. Let's actually pray right now as we enter into to this time. Father, we thank you for Ryan and Christy Farrell. We thank you for Lucy and Penny, God, who are coming out from Denver to Seattle on mission for you. 
We know, God, that this is your doing. We know that this isn't man-made, that this is God-made, that you've put this mission on their heart, that you've put this city on their heart, that you've put this church on their heart, God. We thank you for that. We thank you that you are sending them to bless us and to be on mission with us. We pray for their travels, God. We pray for their hearts as they say goodbye to family, friends, a church that they've been a part of for over seven years. We pray, God, that you would go before them, that you would help them to fully, to fully leave in the sense that they fully embrace those moments to say thank you, to receive encouragement, and that they, in remembering what a good thing you've done in Denver. And then we pray as they arrive, God, that we would welcome them in as our own, as our family, family that they will prove to be. We pray that you give vision to them for their ministry here, for their family, for their connections, to those inside the church and out. God, we give this to you. This is your church. These are your people. Ryan and Christy are your servants. And we thank you that you love us so. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So exciting times are ahead here at Sedaris, and nothing more exciting than next week's baptisms and barbecue. And what I was trying to signal to Nolan was, don't forget to sign up for the potluck. So there's a sign-up sheet in the back. You can also sign up on the app. So we're going to take care of all the meat and the barbecuing and whatnot, but if you wanted to bring like a side salad or a fruit salad or chips, um, you can sign up for that stuff, okay? And we're, we're so, baptisms are the most incredible thing. And I'm so excited for, for the six of us that are going to be baptized next week. And if there's anybody else who's thinking about it that might be interested, uh, come talk to me after the service tonight. It's going to be great. All right. Back to the art of neighboring. Little series that we've been doing here, trying to figure out how do we lean in to the great commandment of Jesus, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and to, lo and to love your neighbor as yourself. What does that mean? And what we've said is that what if the neighbor he's talking about, though it might include coworkers, friends, old and new, what if it also meant the people that live next door? What if it meant the people that were in the eight houses closest to you? What if that was a part of Jesus' command? And I think that it is. I think he's placed you there for a reason, and we've talked about He's placed you there to be handles for people should they choose to reach out to God. They might find Him through you. Your story might connect to their story, which might connect them to God's story. And so we've said what happens in the front yard is important. What happens in, on the sidewalk in front of your house is important work. And loving people just because they're created in the image of God and just because it's worth it in and of itself. That's all we're asked to do. And last week we talked about our motives. We talked about understanding that we don't neighbor well so that we might accomplish something else, but neighboring well, loving our neighbors, is worth it in and of itself. Okay? So that's where we're 
going. That's where we've been. And this week, we're going to talk about overcoming barriers. Because if you're like me, this isn't easy. Even if I've convinced you that the great command includes those people that live around you, even if you find that your motives are good and you just want to love your neighbors for love's sake, it's still incredibly challenging. There's these barriers to entry into this world of neighboring. Now, last week I also mentioned uh, this podcast, Invisibilia. And Invisibilia is this podcast about these invisible forces that affect our world. And I talked about this episode on fear. So if you weren't here last week, (laughs) the basic premise is this. We have our fear mechanism overstimulated, particularly in the last 30 years, to the point that we don't let our kids, for instance, go very far outside of the neighborhood. Maybe to the end of the block. Whereas, 30 years ago, those parents, when they were kids, had free reign for miles and miles around. So what has happened? We've been overstimulated by a number of things. And so we tend to be fearful of almost everything. And it's created in us a great fear, I think, even of our neighbors. Because we've seen stories of neighbors who have been involved in some very interesting things. And one example um, I'll share with you of how this sort of works is uh, when we were kids. Did your parents ever tell you this? It's actually quite helpful as a parent when you tell your kids, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Have you heard of this? Did anybody's parents actually say that to them? Word for word? Yes. (laughs) It's a thing. Show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Well, in in many ways that's a very true statement. The friends that you have, particularly as you're growing up, can have a huge impact on your life going forward. But here's the problem. That ends at some point when you become an adult, you're not quite as malleable as you were when you were a kid. But yet, I think when we neighbor, our parents' head in the back of our, our, our voice in the back of our head speaks up. you, You remember, show me your neighbors and I'll show you your future. And so we stay away from people who might be dangerous or might corrupt our good morals or our lifestyle. We're a little bit nervous to enter into these relationships. Maybe our biggest fear isn't that. That's not my biggest fear. But I'll share what my biggest fear is in a second. But before we do that, I want to do a little group exercise. Okay, I want you to turn to your neighbor, and I'm going to give you 90 seconds here, and I want you to talk about, make a quick list, you don't have to write it down, you can if you want, but make a quick list, just share back and forth the things that scare you most, that you're most fearful of when you think about neighboring well, really entering into the life of those in your neighborhood. Okay, 90 seconds, go. All right. Let me see if any of these were on your list, okay? 
Feel free to cheer if you want for those that were on your list, okay? Here we go. These are some that I came up with. Fear of burnout. I have too many relationships to manage already. Mm-hmm. Yeah, give me a mm-hmm. Fear of annoyance. I don't think they actually want me to engage them. I don't want to annoy my neighbors. Mm-hmm. Fear of witness is what I'm calling this one. What, what if I do more harm than good as being a representative of Jesus? What if they actually watch my life really closely and they actually don't think much of Jesus when they look at my life? Fear of awkwardness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what if they bring up politics? Ooh. Fear of negative influence. What if, what if they teach my kids something terrible? What if my kids become friends with their kids and they go over and, yikes, I've got stories. What if they don't like me? What if they do like me and want to hang out all the time? Mm-hmm. What if they find out that I'm a pastor and persecute me? Like literally steal stuff out of my mailbox. That might not be yours, but... We fear all sorts of things when it comes to neighboring. Uh, my biggest, I told you I'd tell you what my number one fear is, it's the fear of rejection. What if they don't like me? What if they want to hang out with all the other neighbors, but they don't really want to hang out with us? That one for me is a big one. But fear is something that can be overcome. So if you, if you have a Bible, would you turn with me to 1 Peter 3.15. 1 Peter 3.15. Now this is a classic verse, one that you may have heard before. And often we think of it as a charge to evangelism, a charge to share our faith with people, including our neighbors. And it's definitely that, but I want to tell you something about the context of this verse. So let me read it for you real quickly, and then, and then I'll come back and I'll tell you something about the context. Actually, let's just start in verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ as Lord, as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile you, your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame." For it is better to suffer for doing good than, it than um, if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Have you heard that verse? Always be ready. Always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is in you. Now, 
I think it's true that 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 hope can include a presentation of the gospel. But in the context, what's really, really interesting is that he's talking about persecution. And he's talking about a fear of persecution. He's saying, if this should happen to you, which means that people were worried, they were fearful. What happens when we engage with the rest of the world? And here's what he's actually saying. He's saying, listen, the hope that you should talk about, when people ask you about it, what they're actually going to be asking you about is, hey, why aren't you fearful like the rest of us would be? Either in your situation as a Christian, or we could even say, not fearful in the way that you neighbor. Because actually, I think most people in our city are pretty fearful of neighboring. They've grown up in the same society. They've had access to the same news outlets. They think very much like we do. They're worried. They're fearful about getting to know their neighbors. And actually, what's going to make them ask a question about this hope is seeing how you are not motivated by fear, but you're motivated by hope. A hope that you could actually have really good neighboring relationships. That's interesting, right? Always be ready to tell people why you don't act out of fear like the rest of the world. And of course, the answer is because Christ compels us. Because even if we do suffer, it's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Even if we do suffer, we're doing it because Christ has commanded us to love our neighbors. And so we move forward in hope, not fear. Hopefully that's encouraging. Fear is a huge barrier to neighboring well. And I pray that you can overcome that fear with hope. The second barrier that I want to talk about is the barrier of time. How many of you are thinking right now, I've got a ton of extra time to start some new relationships with my neighbors? Tons of time. Let alone eight <laughs> new neighbors. This is probably the biggest obstacle that we need to overcome if we want to be effective at fulfilling the great commandment. And the question we want to ask ourselves is, are we living at a pace in which we can actually neighbor well? Are we living at a pace that allows us to be available for those around us? Now, if you're busy like me, if the first thing that you always say, like me, when somebody asks you, how are you doing, is busy, or if you do like I do and you think of another way you could say busy that sounds not so cliche, um, well, our life's very full. It's very full right now. So full. So if I've ever said that to you, I'm just thinking in my head, busy, <laughs> but I'm trying not to sound like everyone else. But the reason we laugh at that is because that's what we all say. So there's a couple myths that we believe when it comes to busyness. We say, well, someday things will settle down. If we just finish this, then we'll have all this time to neighbor well. That's a myth. It's a lie. It's not going to happen. There will always be something else. Second myth. More will be enough. With one more of these, with one more of this, then I'll be content, then I'll settle down, then I won't work so hard, 
then I can neighbor well. Third myth is this. Everyone lives like this. I'm not abnormal. That's actually not true. Not everybody lives at the pace that most of us probably live at. It's probably good to stop making excuses and start figuring out how we can live at a pace that allows us to follow Christ in all aspects of our life. I'm talking to myself here too. I really do not believe I have time for my neighbors. So I gotta change something. I gotta fix something. Great relationships form in the margins, which means that you cannot schedule neighboring. You cannot say, okay, at this time, on this date, I'm gonna neighbor well. Neighboring just happens in the margins of life. You don't get to clock in, you don't get to clock out. Jesus lived this way. He lived at a pace that was interruptible. So turn to Matthew 5, and we're going to look at a story that, that highlights this pretty well. Matthew chapter 5, the Gospel of Matthew, or sorry, Mark chapter 5, the Gospel of Mark. And we're going to look at a story. It's a pretty interesting story. You've probably heard it before. So let me start by reading Mark chapter 5, verse 21 to 24. Get us started here. Mark chapter 5, 21 to 24. It says this. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored Jesus constantly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be well and live. And Jesus went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. Now at this point in the story, the story of Mark's gospel, Mark's account of Jesus' life, Jesus and his disciples, they're up in this this region called Galilee. And it's in sort of northern Israel. So it'd be like being up in Bellingham, for instance, to Seattle, being Jerusalem. And in the first part of, of Mark 5, they are at a town called Jerjiza, sorry. There Jesus heals a man who's been living in the caves and tombs because he's been possessed by demons. Pretty intense experience. This is the one where Jesus casts out demons into a herd of pigs, and the pigs jump off a cliff. Pretty intense day's work for Jesus. And so they get back in their boat, and then they head down nor- or they head northwest across the Sea of Galilee, and they go to a town called Capernaum. And immediately when they get off the boat, they're met there by a horde of people. They just surround Jesus and his disciples. And then comes up one of the leaders of the synagogue. This is Jairus. And he tells Jesus, my daughter is deathly ill. 
She's about to die. She's on her deathbed. She rushes up to Jesus. He falls at his feet. He begs Jesus to come and heal his daughter. I just want you to feel the intensity of what's happening here. Imagine the anguish on the Father's face. Imagine the emergency. Imagine the pandemonium as everyone's gathered around. And in that hurriedness, in the time-sensitive situation in which Jesus finds himself, let's read and see what happens next. Verse 25 says this. And then, as they were going to the house, a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed. And Jesus, perceiving what had happened in himself, the power that had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing all around you, and yet you say, Who touched you? Everyone's touching you. And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before Jesus and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Incredible, right? Emergency situation on his way to Jairus' house to save a young girl and this woman who's physically in pain but probably almost as bad is a spiritual outcast in her culture because to bleed meant that she was not allowed to participate in any of the religious experiences of her culture for 12 years, an outcast for 12 years in pain. She'd gone to doctors. It made her worse. This was her last hope. She'd heard the stories of Jesus, and she chose to reach out and grab for him. Picture the masses of people around, and Jesus stops, knowing that power has gone out, and says, who touched me? Who touched my garment? Now, now, this is so interesting. Don't miss this. Look at, look at what she does. She comes to Jesus. She, she admits, it was me. And then it says, and then she told him the whole truth. What, do you, what does that mean? You know what it probably means? 
that Jesus sat there and listened to her tell her whole story. Her whole story about all the failed doctors, all the pain, all the shame, all the isolation, the whole truth of what had happened to her. And he waits patiently. This is incredible, right? Apparently, she doesn't realize that Jesus is on his way to heal a dying little girl. Apparently, she doesn't see the fretting and the pacing of, the, of Jairus, the girl's daughter. And yet, Jesus doesn't tell her, hey, I'm kind of busy right now. I've got more important things to do. He stops and he hears her story. He looks her in the eye. He heals her. He speaks a blessing over her. And then he continues on. He continues on. So read with me in Mark 35. Mark 5, 35. says this. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Proof. Proof that if you don't keep your eye on the ball, that if you don't stay right on time, that if you don't prioritize, look what happens. The girl's dead. There it is. Proof that we shouldn't be interrupted. You could see it coming. Oh, this poor woman who didn't know the important things Jesus was doing. She had only known maybe the little girl wouldn't have died. But let's keep reading. Verse 36. But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, that's the dad, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but only sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up, began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement, and he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and told them to give her something to eat. This little girl had stopped breathing. Her body was lying in the bed. And Jesus sits down on the edge of her bed, just like any mother or father would do on any given day, day or night. And she takes the little girl's hand, 
And she says, and he says to her, beautiful child, get up. In, ens- in essence, Jesus is saying this to all of us. If you have your hand in my hand, death itself is nothing but sleep. That's all it took. She breathed again. Her eyes opened. Life came back into her body. She gets up, walks around the room, and Jesus says, get her something to eat. Jesus brings a 12-year-old girl back from the dead. Here's what we need to understand about this story. It's an amazing story. Jesus heals one woman who feels like she's dead because she's an outcast. And everyone thinks because he chose to be interrupted that he's missed the opportunity for a greater thing, which is to heal this little girl. But then Jesus goes and actually heals and raises from the dead a 12-year-old girl. This is only possible because Jesus' view of time is different than ours. Jesus' view of the restriction and limitation of time is different than ours. Time doesn't own Jesus. Jesus owns time. And so he can do this. He has learned how to master neighboring because he's learned that through the power of the Spirit, through the power of the Father Nothing is beyond his reach. And so he's able to stop what he's doing to help the woman who's been bleeding for 12 years, knowing that he has the power with whatever happens next to heal the little girl who is dying. So he allows himself to be available, to intervene, to change history. And so while we're likely not going to raise anyone from the dead in our neighborhood, what does it look like for us to not drown in the barrier of time? What does it not look like for us to not be overwhelmed by the restriction of time? What does it look like for us to be available to intervene when the opportunity presents itself, and to actually change the history of those people's lives who live near us. Well, let's talk about how we could actually create this kind of margin. I'm going to talk about three ways that we can create this kind of margin. The first is this. We need to keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing that we see in the the story in Mark chapter 5 is this. The main thing is that Jesus is power. Jesus is power. So Mark's gospel builds this conclusion throughout, that Jesus stills the storm in chapter 4. He controls nature itself. Jesus heals the demon-possessed man in the caves. Jesus control 
the spiritual realm. Jesus heals the woman who has been bleeding. Jesus controls the body. Jesus raises the girl from the dead. Jesus controls life and death itself. Jesus is power. And the main point of this story is that Jesus is God who can bring people back from the dead. If we keep that the main thing, if we know that that is true, that Jesus has the power to bring dead things back to life, then we can have confidence to keep the main things the main things. And we have power when we go into our neighboring relationships, power to know that we too might be avenues through which he brings life out of death. If you you just think about your neighborhood, there are marriages that are dying. There are relationships with kids that are dying. There are dreams that are dying. Life wasn't supposed to turn out this way. Finances are dying. And Jesus has the power to bring life out of death. If we remember that, if we remember that for our own life, if we remember to stay connected to Jesus, then I think we'll have the ability to live with margin. If we forget that and we try to do all things in our own power, we will crush ourselves. Death will come. We will not live with margin. We will chase our tail. So don't forget the first part of the great commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself is the second part, but we cannot forget the first part, which is to love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Keep the main thing the main thing. Do not forget to love God. Be connected with Jesus. Use his power to create margin in your life. Use his power to bring death, bring life from death. Don't do it in your own power. And learn to keep the main things the main things. And when we keep the main things the main things, what we realize is that we have some priorities. We have a priority to God, as we already said. We have a priority to our immediate family, our kids, our spouse. We have a priority to our closest friends, or what I call our discipling relationships the people in our life who depend on us, those friends. And then we have a priority to rest and sleep. Those are main things. Those are a part of the rhythms God's called us to as followers of him. Now, the second thing is this. We must manage the time stealers. Time stealers are, are, are often great things, great pieces of life, things that God has created and given to us, But when they become time stealers is when they grow out of what they were always meant to be into something they were never meant to be. So when they become bigger than they should have been, they become more a piece of your life. And I've got all sorts of these in my life. Let me give you just a couple of things that might be. Netflix, endless research on the internet, social media, Vacations, they're great, 
But if you're gone every weekend, how are you ever going to get to know your neighbors? Most of these things are taking a pleasure of life and turning it into a main thing. And the way to get back, the way to eliminate, the way to manage time stealers is to crush them so that they become what they always were meant to be. You think of a rock, needs to become sand again. Needs to be crushed. Doesn't mean that you have to get rid of it altogether, it just means that it's grown out of control. So we need to manage our time stealers. Please, please hear this when I say this. These are not necessarily bad things. It's just when they snowball and they become a main thing, Jesus says, you need to get that under control. Here's a practical tip that I'm going to try in managing my time stealers. After a long day, putting Grayson down, sometimes that can be very late, we're working on that. Instead of maybe flipping on the TV and unplugging because I'm tired, what if I just, or, or grabbing my phone and looking at social media or researching something, which I tend to do, what if I take 15 minutes and I sit on my front porch and I just sit there and see what happens? Maybe a neighbor walks by. Maybe I remember their name because I'm working hard on that. And I say hello. Maybe that turns into a conversation. Maybe they ask for help. Maybe they need me to move a piece of furniture. And that begins a relationship. And it's just because I've disciplined to take 15 minutes to sit on my porch before I move on to my wind-down exercise. <laughs> it's not a life, complete life shift. It's just a discipline. It's not a world-changing gospel strategy. It's just discipline. It's not rocket science. It's just discipline. It's a discipline to manage my time stealers. Like I said, I'm not good at this, guys. I'm just trying to, to think about how I could do this well. Which brings me to my last strategy. Be interruptible. If you're going to create margin in your life to be a good neighbor and create these handles that people can grab onto if one day they're ready to meet the one true God, you need to try to be interruptible. Jesus is interruptible. We saw that in Mark 5. The interruptible life is the life of love. There's a quote by a guy named John Ortberg. It says this, Love and hurry are fundamentally incompatible. Love always takes time, and time is the one thing hurried people don't have. You've got to figure out a way to not be hurried, because otherwise you will never be able to love your neighbors, or maybe even your family. This is something I struggle with. I really do. So I'm not standing up here saying, I've got it figured out. But I think this is one of the problems with my lack of neighboring, is that I'm not interruptible. 
Because usually the time that you see your neighbors is in a transition from one thing to the next. Because maybe you're going to your car, or you're coming in from your car, or you're on your way to go do something. And if I don't learn to be interruptible, I'll never actually have real relationship with my neighbors. Being a good neighbor might actually mean being late for church or being late for your fellowship group. That's the only good reason. Because a neighbor says, hey, let's have a conversation. But I think what is interesting about this is that in a weird way, people who live with margin in their life, people who are interruptible, often seem like less important people. Right? Like we think the people that are the busiest, that are the most hurried, that always leave a meeting right at the beginning of the end, the people that never have time to talk, those people must be important because they've got places to be and people to see. And what's so interesting about that is that the most important person that ever walked the face of the earth was the exact opposite. He was purposeful, but he was never in a hurry. He was busy, but never rushed. He was always willing to be interrupted. If that's a fear of yours, not appearing important enough, you need to get over that. Because that's exactly what the king of the universe was regarded as. Unimportant. See, he even stops for the woman that we haven't even talked to in 12 years. He must not be that important. Do you want to seem important, or do you want to be likened to the one who is actually the great importance? You need to ask yourself that question. And if you answer, I want to be likened to he that is the great importance, then you'll learn to be interruptible. You'll learn to stop and have that conversation with the neighbor, even when it's not convenient. And in doing so, you're loving your neighbor really well. Okay. I had this great illustration, but I'm, I'm, I'm just going to let you wonder what it was. The rocks are the main things. The sand, which I bought, and I have a big bag if anybody needs sand. It's very cheap, actually. Uh, the sand... <laughs> okay, I'm not going to do it. Well, I am going to do it. The sand is when you crush the things that have become rocks that were always meant to be sand. And then the water is this free space. This space that we were always created to have. This room that we must protect so that if we put it in last, but we plan on putting it in, what we'll actually realize is that we have a lot more of it than we originally thought. And you've probably seen this before. If you put them in, in the wrong order, like the sand first and, and then the water and then the rocks, you can't fit very much in. So you start with the rocks, the main things. Keep them the main things. You put in the sand those time stealers that are crushed down to be what they're meant to be, nice things in life. And then you fill it with the water. And you realize, wow, 
I can do a lot more than I thought I could. I can be a better neighbor than I thought I could. And you know what? My neighbors aren't as crazy and weird as I feared that they were. They're actually quite normal. They're actually quite nice to talk to. I actually like some of them. And what do you know? We start real relationships with those that live around us, and maybe one day we help connect their story to our story to God's story. And they reach out and they find Jesus. That's our hope. That's our prayer. But we must overcome these barriers which tie us down and keep us from the great command. So let me give you just a couple practical next steps. We'll talk a little bit about this next week in the park, but let me just get you thinking here. What would it look like for you to maybe throw a party for your neighbors? And let me give you something super tangible. On August 1st, is a national crime prevention night called Night Out. And you can go and you can register a block party and you can actually have your street blocked off and you can try to find one neighbor who might agree on the front end to help you throw a block party and you might just pull out the barbecue, you might make some food, you might walk around and invite all your neighbors and you might actually just have a good time. Pray about that. Think about that. What would that take? What fear would you have to lean into? What would you have to move out of your schedule? What excuse would you have to take away to do something like that? I'm praying about it. I'm coming up with all sorts of reasons not to do it. But I'm going to try to do this. What would it look like for you to do something like this with your neighbors? Let's pray.